Life Audio. You're listening to the Dwell on These Things podcast. I'm John Stonge, and I'm glad you're here with us this week. We're currently studying the Gospel of Mark together and learning more about the life, ministry, and miracles of Jesus. We'll jump into today's teaching in just a moment, but first, let's hear a quick word from the sponsors of today's episode. Hello, folks. My name is Derek Greer, and I'm reaching out to fellow pastors and church leaders just like you to join me and other Christian leaders and organizations throughout the nation as we come together on June 8th and 9th for National Unity Weekend. Together, we will show the love of Jesus as we serve our communities on Saturday, June 8th, and then preach from a shared text on Sunday, June 9th. To register, go to unityweekend.com. That's unityweekend.com to join us as we unite the church and unite the nation. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. This morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 45. So if you take your Bibles and turn there with me, that's where we're going to be today. And we're going to be asking the question, and I want you to be thinking about it even as I prepare to read the Scripture we're about to look at, could this be why you're having a hard time getting ahead? Could this be why you're having a hard time getting ahead? So we're in Mark chapter 6. And uh, I'm going to pick up at verse 45 and read down to verse 56. This is what it says. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region, began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to spend this time together today looking at your word, seeking to grow in our walk with you as a result putting you first in our lives, understanding the things that you've communicated. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture this morning, as we look at these things that that you've revealed in your Word, that you'd help us to understand what we're reading. 
You'd help us to grow in our walk with you. That you'd help us as we seek to be men and women who put you first in all matters and in all areas. And Lord, we're just so grateful for the privilege that it is to be able to have access to your word. We know, Lord, that there are people all throughout this world who do not have access to your word like you've graced us with. And so, Lord, we pray that we would make the most of it. We pray that we would look at your word, that we would internalize its teaching, that we would grow in our walk with you, and that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit as we seek to understand more about your will and about the work that you accomplish through your Son, Jesus Christ. We commit this time to you now, Lord. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the other day, I was, I was reading in an online forum, and uh, yes, my life has become that boring that sometimes I read in online forums. Uh, but I was actually reading in an online forum that was related to household finance, personal finance, things like that. And I came across a post from a woman that said this, and it was something that I, I actually felt uh, great concern for this person and uh, inspired me to just lift her up in prayer. Uh, but she said this, she said, I need serious help. I am drowning in credit card debt to the point that I am so far behind, I just quit paying them just so I could pay my mortgage, car insurance, and monthly necessities. Then she said, I took out a loan with a very high interest rate to try and catch up, and all I've gained is another stupid payment. I've gone from a decent credit score to probably not even being able to finance a pack of gum. And then she said, LOL. Then she said, somebody please tell me where to start to get this under control. I'm desperate here. That was her statement. She finished it with, I'm desperate here. And I thought to myself, you know, and maybe I'll even just ask as a question for all of us, can you identify with that woman's struggle? You know, when you hear some of the things that she's talking about and some of the desperation that you could hear in her voice, can you, can you identify with that? At some point in your life, have you ever experienced a financial hardship where you felt like, you know, I'm, I'm never going to get ahead of this. This is something that's going to be something that's around my neck for a long time. Or maybe, maybe you've experienced a hardship in another area of life, maybe in relationships or maybe in schooling or, or in health or just in your work or your vocation that felt somewhat similar to the kind of desperation that she expressed in her post. And maybe you felt like as much as you tried to make progress toward getting ahead, you just felt stuck and felt like you couldn't go anywhere. Your mind and your body got tired because you were expending so much effort, but then you felt like you weren't really actually moving forward. Is that something that we could relate with or relate to on some level in some category? I would suspect that most of us, if not all of us, can look back at some point in our life or maybe even something that we're wrestling with in present day and say, yeah, I know exactly how it feels. Because we've all probably experienced either a category uh, or a season of life that felt this way. And the truth is we're not alone. And in the portion of Scripture that we just read from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 down to, down to 56, we're actually given a glimpse right into the lives of the apostles right after Jesus had miraculously fed thousands of people. Now, we looked at that portion of Scripture last week, but you could see from the context that they were in that these men were exhausted, they're so tired, they've been serving so many people, and and you have all these events here taking place in the midst of that exhaustion. But I believe that they actually needed to be brought close to a breaking point for their lives to be able to see the things that Jesus was attempting to show them. And that's kind of the spot that he allowed them to get to. 
That's what was going on in this portion of Scripture. Now, when we pick up at verse 45, let me bring that up here for us. It says this to kind of set up what's going on. I want to reread it for us. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So this is taking place right after Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000-plus people. And he makes the disciples get in this boat, the boat that they had traveled over to that area in, and he makes the disciples get in this boat, and he says, all right, you know, I want you to head toward the city of Bethsaida proper after spending time most likely there in a harbor near the city or maybe just the hills outside of the city. But again, these men were completely exhausted from serving people. They had been serving people all day. Scripture tells us thousands and thousands of people were there, and it was the disciples who were responsible to take food to them as they gathered in groups of 50 and 100. They were serving them. They were cleaning up after them. They were exhausted from serving people all day. And I imagine that they probably looked forward to a little bit of downtime after being with the crowds. Now, we just finished some holidays. We all just... uh, probably had some time that we had to to get together with family and friends and things like that. And do you ever find yourself when you're in the midst of a lot of people that sometimes you just kind of step away for a a, a second just because you want a little time alone? It's not that you dislike the people that you're around, you just want a breather. You know, you don't have that social energy that you want to keep giving out constantly. And I imagine the disciples were kind of in a spot like that where they just thought, okay, serving people is wonderful, and it's great that these crowds keep coming to hear Jesus, but we also just need a break from time to time. And Jesus tells them, get on the boat, start sailing, and as they were going, the Scripture also tells us that Jesus took care of dismissing the large crowd that had gathered. So there's thousands of people that are there. They see them get into the boat. They get in the boat. They go. Jesus takes care of dismissing the crowd. Now, it's interesting when you look at portions of Scripture like this, because in the Bible, in the New Testament, you have the four Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four giving us a picture of the earthly ministry of Christ and all giving us slightly different angles from which some of these events took place so that we have additional details and additional perspectives. And it's interesting when you look at some of the companion scriptures to this passage because we're given an additional insight that doesn't show up here in Mark, but it actually shows up in the Gospel of John. And it gives us an insight as to why Jesus dismissed this crowd. You would think that as he's there trying to reach people and trying to help people understand his will, you would think that he'd want the crowd to stay assembled. You'd think that he'd want the crowd to continue doing what they're doing, but he actually dismisses the crowd, and he has a very specific reason for doing so. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 15, we're actually told that the crowd had the intention to seize Jesus by force and make him their king. That was their intention. They wanted to seize him by force and make him their king, but that obviously would have been a deviation from Christ's mission at the moment. That's not what he was seeking to do at the moment. There will be a day when he will be lifted up and recognized as king. Scripture tells us that. But his mission during his first coming was to be a suffering servant who would be lifted up, but in a different way. He would be lifted up on the cross, and he would die for the sins of humanity. That was his mission at this particular moment. But this group of people at this point wanted to seize him and make him their king by force, and so he dismissed the crowd and then stepped away. And the Scripture tells us that to prevent the crowd from seizing him, he actually left them and went up into the mountain. And he went there to pray alone. 
goes up in the mountain, goes up there to pray alone. And when you look throughout the Gospels, it actually tells us that Jesus would do this with some regularity. He would step away from the crowds, he would go to quiet and desolate places, and he would spend time in prayer, find a solitary place, he'd go, he'd pray to the Father, keeping in mind that the Father is the one he has enjoyed perfect fellowship and perfect friendship and perfect relationship with from eternity past. And Scripture tells us he would go and he would spend fellowship time with the Father. And I'm guessing that as Jesus did this, that these times of prayer were restful. I'm guessing these things were also energizing. And I also imagine that they were pretty helpful for remaining focused on the task at hand. And so Jesus would go and he would spend these alone times with the Father. He'd step away from the group, step away from the apostles, step away from the larger groups that had gathered, and he'd just spend some time in in solitude and, and prayer. And if I may, let me encourage you to seek this kind of fellowship and alone time with the Lord as well. I don't know if this is something that's a pattern that you already incorporate in your life, but I want you to consider something. And and, and I want you to consider this particularly if you're going through a season right now that maybe feels like it's, it's stretching you in abnormally difficult ways. If you're going through something like that, it just feels like you're being stretched in particular ways. I, I remember about 10 years ago, I went through a season that, far, that, that felt particularly stretching for me. And in the moment, I remember thinking, all right, this is challenging. Uh, this is difficult. This is not something I anticipated. Now, when I look back at that season... Uh, I look back at it as a huge blessing to my life, to my family, to our church, all of these things. But to help me, me sh- to help me shoulder my burdens at the time, I actually uh, spent some time alone, several days at a rustic cabin that a friend of mine let me use for free. And he could tell that I was feeling a bit exhausted. He could tell I was feeling a bit stressed. And he said, "You know, we're we're part of a ministry that I mean, we we do this for pastors all the time." And uh, we have these cabins that we encourage pastors to come and use and just get away and take a little bit of a break. And I said, you know what, I've never taken, up, I've never taken anyone up on something like that. I said, I'm going to take you up on it. So I took him up. It was a nice chalet. It was kind of funny um, to have that much space for myself. But I thought, okay, I was going to do that. My wife was like, yeah, go do this. You, you need to do this. And I remember I was thinking, all right, well, how can I make the most of this time? And so I went there and I spent some time in prayer. And I brought some things to read, and I brought some things to listen to. And I remember after a couple days being there at that cabin, I left genuinely refreshed. It was very quiet. Internet was terrible, so there wasn't much connection to the outside world. There was some internet, but barely. And I was like, this is great. My phone barely worked. I thought, this is fantastic. And it's interesting here because it tells us that that from time to time, Jesus would just go and have a time of solitude so he could pray and have fellowship with the Father. It's a good pattern for us as believers to incorporate. It can be very challenging, particularly if you've got young children. I also feel compassion for those that are single parents trying to figure some of those things out. I understand sometimes solitude might not look like a several-day thing. Sometimes it might be where you notice on your schedule that you just have a couple hours, and then you just take the couple hours or maybe if you've got young kids, maybe solitude happens at 8.30 at night when the kids go to sleep, and you could just have some solitude then. But here it tells us that after Jesus spent some time alone in prayer, it was now time 
after, after spending that fellowship, getting re-energized in a sense, it was time for him to continue the work that he was doing with the apostles and also keep teaching them the lessons that he was attempting to teach them, particularly because there were many things that they did not understand, whether it was about him or about his work or about his ministry or about his mission. There were all sorts of things they didn't understand. And so he's still training them. He's still preparing them. He's still allowing them to experience a variety of things because he wants their faith to grow. And then notice what it tells us in verse 48. I wonder if anyone caught this when we first read it. But in verse 48 of Mark chapter 6, and I'll read down to verse 50, this is what it tells us happened. It says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. So think about where they are. They're out on the water. They're in the boat. They're trying to go toward uh, uh, Bethsaida, the city itself. And Jesus is observing what's going on. He sees this. It says, and he saw, and by the way, it doesn't tell us how far away he was as he's seeing this. You know, I, I see something supernatural here, even in just this comment that he saw this. But it says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. I love that portion of Scripture. I love what Jesus does there. I love how he responds to the disciples. But we're told here that the apostles were out on the boat. They're out on the water. Now, keep in mind their background. The apostles were well acquainted with fishing. They were well acquainted with being out on the water. Some of them had been directly involved in that work. They were directly involved in that trade. And those who weren't directly involved in it also, I mean, they grew up in a context where fishing was very common. So whether or not they did it as a career or a trade, this was also something they were, they were pretty familiar with. And, um, and those, you know, so those who, who weren't involved in the trade, they grew up in a context where it at least was common. And many of them, and I, I would say at this point, all of them, they understood what it was like to be out on the water at night. This isn't the first experience, in fact, that they've had with Christ where they have been out on the water at night. And they also understood, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, that sometimes unexpected winds and unexpected storms had the potential to make life on the water very, very difficult, and sometimes even treacherous. And the Scripture tells us that this particular night, the winds were working against the apostles. So the winds are working against him, and they were struggling to make progress. They're trying to get ahead, and they're struggling to make progress. Do you ever find yourself in a boat where that's the case? Anyone ever go kayaking over here on Lake Luxembourg over in Core Creek Park? You ever go kayaking over there? I remember a few years ago I bought kayaks, and I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to kayak all the time. I didn't kayak all the time, but I did kayak a lot, especially the year that I first got those kayaks. And what I discovered is that on windy days, it's very easy to go out on the water and very difficult to get back. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is more of an upper body workout than I really wanted. And um, I still loved it. I still thought it was fun. But you, you find yourself in a, in, in a spot sometimes where the wind really works against you. And the scripture here tells us that no matter how much energy they expended, they couldn't make any progress. They're, they're barely making progress here on the water. Also, keep in mind what their day has been like, and even the days leading up to it. That day in particular, they had already spent all day serving thousands and thousands of people. So these guys are spent. They are exhausted. And now they're being forced to row against the wind in the middle of the night. 
In fact, the Scripture tells us that these events were taking place during the fourth watch of the night. Do you know what time that would be? The fourth watch of the night? That's between 3 and 6 a.m. So these events are happening sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. after a full day of them being just exhausted from serving people. Now, I would be very curious to know how the apostles described this event years later, but I have a guess as to what they may have said. I think in the midst of all of this, I think they learned something about Jesus through this experience that they really weren't likely to learn any other way. And I think this is what happens. I think Jesus will often allow us to to come to a spot of exhaustion from trying to do everything in our own strength and everything in our own power, and he'll allow us to, to, to see what that's like, because in the midst of that, he can teach us a lesson that we can't learn any other way. One, once we become convinced that our striving and our strength is not sufficient, I actually think our hearts are then in the ideal place to learn that we desperately need the help of Christ. And I think sometimes you have to get to that point of exhaustion where you realize, I have tried everything I can do in my own physical strength. I've tried everything I could do in my own wisdom. I need outside intervention. I need the help of Christ. And as we see in Scripture, that's right when he showed up. He shows up to help the the apostles after he allows them to get to the spot where they are completely exhausted. And I love how it tells us that he approached them, because it tells us here that he walked on water to the place where the apostles were stuck. Now, how often have you heard people say, what do I got to do? Walk on water to prove to you that, that this or that? Do you ever, do you ever hear somebody say that? Uh, it's kind of fascinating how many colloquialisms that we say in our day-to-day language come from the events of Scripture. Maybe some of you grew up listening to 80s music, and you can remember a song by Eddie Money called Walk on Water. Does anyone remember that? You have to look it up later. He's like, what do I... Basically, he's like, what do I have to walk on water to prove my love to you, right? Do you ever say that to your sweetheart? I have to, Valentine's Day is coming up. It'll be here before you know it. Tell, I walk on water for you and see how well it works, right? Um, we can't do it, but Jesus can. And it's interesting here. You have Jesus walking on the water to the place where the apostles were stuck. Now, Peter was Mark's main source for, uh, for his gospel. And so when you look at Mark's references to all these things, Keep in mind that much of this is coming from Peter's perspective, and it's being dictated to Mark, and Mark is, is writing these things down. But Peter reveals what it looked like to them that Jesus was doing. It looked to them like Jesus was going to you know, just walk right by them. But then the apostles cried out for fear that they were seeing a ghost. And then Jesus speaks to them, and he says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I. There's another translation that translates that, Take heart. I am here, or another way you could look at that is the I am is here. One of the things that that Scripture reveals to us about God is that God reveals himself to humanity by the name I am. And what Christ was trying to say to the apostles is, don't be afraid, God's with you. I'm here, don't be afraid, God's with you. Now, if you've spent the majority of your life primarily trusting in yourself, or just trying to trust in your strength or your effort or your wisdom, I think it can take a little while to correct that line of thinking. And I think that the apostles at this point still needed that line of thinking corrected. And so Jesus is attempting to do that. And when you look at verse 51, it tells us this. It says, and he got into the boat with them. This is after he calms them down. He gets into the boat with them, 
it says, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. So that's a reference to the feeding of the 5,000 that had just happened earlier, I guess the previous day it would be at that point. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It says their hearts were hardened. Christ's apostles, and it's amazing to think about the apostles being at a spot where this was the case, but his apostles had hearts that were still rather hard at this point. And even though they had witnessed many, many miraculous things, they were not yet at the place of full trust and full surrender in Jesus Christ. They weren't there yet. And so Jesus used moments like this to teach them that they can rest in him regardless of whatever headwind they may be facing. Now, in this case, they were facing a literal headwind. But sometimes in day-to-day life, you're facing a headwind that's a little bit more circumstantial in nature. And Jesus was teaching them, look, you can trust in me regardless of whatever's coming against you, whether it's a literal wind or one of the trials or moments of adversity that we experience in life. And here it tells us that Jesus caused the wind to be still, causes the wind to cease, and he sits down in the boat with them. This is a second lesson like this that he's taught them out on that water. I have to tell you, and some of you will probably be able to identify with this pretty quickly, but the Lord taught me a ministry lesson some years ago that has a pretty clear application to our day-to-day walk with him that I just thought it would be interesting to take a quick moment to share. And I think this will also be particularly helpful for those of you that are giving some thought to maybe some forms of vocational ministry at a future season of life. But for most of my adult life, I have been involved with various church planting or church revitalization ministries. That's what I've been doing since I was in my early 20s. It's what I continue to enjoy doing to this day. I'm grateful for uh, the privilege to do so. I have the, the chance to oversee a mission board that helps struggling churches. And so from time to time, I'm asked to help churches that are really struggling that would like to bounce back and maybe regain a position of health. And it's kind of interesting what you discover that leads to churches really struggling. It's all all sorts of things, but there are some common patterns. And one of the patterns I've noticed in just about all the churches or ministries that I've tried to help over the years is that the churches that were still trying to survive in their own strength, they didn't progress to a point of health. The churches that are trying to just rely on their own strength, their own wisdom, um, you know, that, that are just like, like thinking that they could still somehow pull it all together uh, with this thought that, you know, that, that, they, that they could just like fight to the death to stay alive. Eventually what ends up happening is that they, uh, they die. I actually had an experience a little over a year ago. I was invited to, I won't say which town this church was in. Uh, and you'll, you'll see why in just a second, but they invited me to come and speak. It's a church that had submitted themselves to the mission board that, that I'm part of. And, um, and so I went there and I spoke and I was just, they were really struggling. And so I, I shared some things that they needed to do. And I don't know about you. I mean, how, how do you feel when somebody gets combative with you? In, it, do you ever find yourself in a spot where you're leading a meeting and someone gets combative and you know you've only been nice and truthful, but they just kind of have an edge? Well, there was somebody at that meeting that just decided to kind of like puff himself up and get very combative, and then there were other people that were like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, so it's like that. Okay. <laughs> I didn't really take that posture, but I did smirk a little bit about it. I was like, oh, now we know why your church is dying, don't we? Now we know. And I thought to myself, well, I can keep that in my head, or I could just say it. 
And this is what I said to them. I said, you know, when I got here just a little bit ago, I parked down the street and I parked in front of a building that used to be a church, but my understanding is a year ago that closed. And I said, you're close to being the next one that's going to be closed. I bet you you close. If you keep up this attitude, I bet you your church closes. And they were like, what? Who are you to say that to us? And I said, someone who actually cares enough to tell you the truth, that this attitude kills churches. It'll kill your church. You're so puffed up and so full of pride. Your church is dying all around you, and you think you've got everything figured out. And I said, do you invite me to come up and help, and I give you some advice, and all you do is give me attitude? Like, I don't need to drive here and talk to you about this. You asked me to be here, and I'm telling you the truth. But you've got to humble yourself if any of this is going to work. And I said, and if you don't, you're going to be the next church that's dead. And your community needs a gospel witness. And sadly, they did not humble themselves or take any outside counsel, and a year later voted to shut down. And I thought to myself, I'm sad about that, but I wasn't surprised. But then there are other churches that will approach our board, and they'll say, you know what, we've tried everything we can think of. We've literally tried everything we can think of. And at this point, what we're convinced of is that what we're trying is just not working. We need outside help. We need guidance from other people. And our board partners together and works with them. And there are several of them that are doing very, very well. And what I've noticed, the pattern happens to be, is that the churches that humbly submit themselves to the Lord's will and the Lord's work and allow the Lord to just give them some outside help and outside intervention from people that want to partner with them, instead of just fighting against that help and just trying to do everything in their own strength and in their own wisdom, those churches end up having a fruitful ministry. I've seen that in, that pattern, in, in this, this same pattern over the past 25 years of my life and being involved in these things. In each case where progress is actually made, you see examples of faith in the Lord and submission to His plan. That's what you see. And I think our spiritual lives operate the same exact way. I think when we insist on self-reliance, when we insist on walking by sight, what, what ends up happening is we miss the greater things that the Lord's attempting to show us. But when we stop fighting the Lord, and when we learn to trust in Him enough that we would submit our lives over to Him, we begin to witness Him working all sorts of miracles all around us, interventions that only He could orchestrate. And that's one of the privileges that He grants us and gives to us. Think about what it tells us in Hebrews chapter 4. And Hebrews 4 tells us a variety of things, but one of the things it says, look, in verse 7 of Hebrews 4, it says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Well, why does anyone harden their hearts? We harden our hearts because we think we know better than someone else or because we think we know better than God. So in the spiritual sense, if we harden our hearts, it's because we think we know better. And it says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And then later in the chapter, it says this, speaking of Christ, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So it's saying, with with confidence, come to God who desires to help you. Don't harden your heart against Him, but submit yourself to the Lord who desires to help you. And the interesting thing coming back to Mark 6 is that Scripture is very clear here. And by the way, keep in mind, Peter is the main source So he's kind of telling on himself as he's telling Mark, write these things down. And he reveals, you know what? You know what, Mark? Write this down. At that point, our hearts were still hard. We still had hard hearts. 
And so in the midst of that, what do they do? Jesus lets them fight against the wind and make no progress until they get good and tired. I'll let you fight, just, I'll let you fight against the wind. That's fine. Fight against the wind until you get good and tired. And then Jesus mercifully comes near to them, and he gives them help. He gives them grace in their time of need. The scripture tells us he stills the wind. He sits down with them in the boat. And again, I think it's such a beautiful demonstration of his power and his calming presence. And it's certainly what the Lord likes to do in our lives as well. You know, and just like the apostles, we need his merciful and gracious intervention. You and I need that. But so often we spend so much time, we waste so much time. That's a better way to say it. We waste so much time fighting against him, hardening our heart, thinking we could just do things in our own strength and in our own way. The scripture finishes up by telling us one additional thing about this journey. When you look at verse 53 to 56, it says, when they had crossed over. So at this point, they're utterly amazed. They're just utterly amazed that Jesus has the capacity to calm the winds and walk on water. They haven't seen him do that yet. They're like, they're just amazed. But when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let me say this as we just kind of finish up this morning. No matter which era you live in, whether you live in our era, whether you live in their era, there are limits to the medical care that you'll find available. This is true in our era. It was true in the days uh, where Christ was fulfilling his earthly ministry. And, uh, And when those we love face severe medical needs, that can be a very scary time. And I know some of you are going through a time like that right now. And I think typically what ends up happening is we will exhaust every effort and attempt every solution known to man when there's a need like that that's present. But in many cases, those needs remain. Now, 2,000 years ago, you see many people in this context, they were desperate for physical healing, and they would do just about anything to get it. And when Jesus and the apostles actually come to shore here, there were people who recognized him. And they start spreading word far and wide, and they think, all right, he's here, We want to see him. We want to get people close to him. We want them to get well. And so as Jesus would walk through the villages and the cities and the countryside, people begged for the privilege to simply touch his clothing because they believed that he could make them well, and that's exactly what he did. As they would touch his clothing, they would be made well. They would supernaturally be healed of their ailments or their diseases or whatever they were dealing with. And as wonderful as their physical healing was, and it certainly was wonderful, Are any of those people still with us today? They're not, right? And eventually, as will be the case with all of us, their physical bodies expired and their time on earth came to an end. But those who trusted in Jesus, now there are some people that just came to him for physical healing, but there are others who trusted in him deeply. Those who trusted in Jesus for more than physical healing, they continue to live on. Scripture reveals they're present with him. They enjoy the rewards of eternal fellowship with Christ. And here's the thing. These things are recorded in Scripture for our benefit to help us understand deeper level things that Christ wants us to know. Jesus is offering us that kind of fellowship as well. He's giving us the opportunity to... Let our minds and our faith see far beyond this present moment. 
He's granting us the privilege to be made well in the eternal sense, not just in the physical sense, but in the eternal sense. I think he's inviting us, just as he did the apostles, to stop hardening our hearts against him so that we could forever draw near to him. With confidence, like it tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, knowing that in him we will find grace to help us in our time of need. Your life and my life, no matter what season of life we're at, there's always going to be needs that are present. And there's always going to be the temptation that we wrestle with this side of heaven to try and meet those needs through temporary solutions or to try and meet those needs through earthly solutions. What's Christ illustrating to the the apostles over and over and over again in a portion of Scripture like this? He's trying to help them understand that the things of this earth can't satisfy our deepest needs. Almost everybody you and I know in this world is trying to look to things that have no eternal value to satisfy eternal longings. And what Christ was trying to help the the hard-hearted apostles, who eventually, except for one, their hearts were softened, He's trying to help them understand, stop chasing after that stuff. Stop thinking that there's a simple earthly solution for everything you're wrestling with, because there isn't. The solution is Christ. And you and I, in the midst of our greatest need, I think sometimes the reason we're struggling to get ahead is because we keep trying to find earthly solutions for eternal matters. And that's why we just keep spinning our wheels. We keep spinning our wheels. And people think, why can't I find a sense of fulfillment or a sense of peace in this world? The reason you can't find a sense of fulfillment or a sense of peace is because you're looking in the wrong place. The only one that could ultimately offer that is Christ himself, and he does offer that. It's just that so many people in this world choose other things because they prefer what they can see with their eyes. But what did Christ tell us? Blessed are those who haven't even seen and yet believe. And the only reason any of us would ever believe any of these things is because the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our hearts. He opens our eyes and our hearts to see these things. And so, as we finish up in just a moment here, I just want to pray for us that the Holy Spirit would help us to see the very things that Christ was trying to help the apostles to see in this moment, and that we would stop chasing earthly solutions to try and satisfy eternal problems that could only be satisfied in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for a portion of Scripture like this that shows us so many interesting things. Lord, we see the, the apostles striving on the water, paddling and paddling in the, in the midst of their exhaustion and really going nowhere until you arrived. Lord, we're, we're grateful for the fact that you taught them this lesson because then as these things were communicated by them to others, that lesson gets passed down to us. And even though in some respects, as we look at this portion of Scripture, we can see that I imagine the apostles felt like they looked a little silly when they looked back at these things in retrospect. But Lord, we also recognize that life's not about making it through mistake-free. We all make mistakes. We all have those moments where we probably look a little silly. But at the same time, Lord, we look at a portion of Scripture like this and we're reminded that your Son is the solution that we need, that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to rescue and redeem us. There were all sorts of people at this point of his earthly ministry who were chasing after him, but it seems like many of them were chasing after him because he filled their bellies with food and healed them of their diseases or their physical ailments or whatever it may be, even raising the dead to life. 
But Lord, we know that there are, there are deeper level spiritual matters that are only solved through a relationship with your Son. Father, we know that we can only converse with you and have fellowship with you through your Son. Your Word tells us that that there's one intercessor between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, one with you for all eternity. And so, Father, we're grateful that we can come before you with confidence. We're grateful that we can approach your throne. We're grateful that we can find mercy and grace in the time of need that we're going through. And, Lord, there are all sorts of, of needs represented here among us. Some of us are experiencing physical needs. Some of us have family members that are dealing with severe medical needs. Some of us are dealing with areas of trial in our family or in our vocation or just within our own minds. Lord, we wrestle with all sorts of things. Some of us are dealing with marriage issues, relationship issues, financial issues. There's all sorts of things that we face in this world. And sometimes we look at these categories and we think, why can't I just get ahead? Why can't I make progress? And Lord, I'm convinced as I look at a portion of Scripture together with our church family like this today, it seems to me like the reason sometimes we really struggle to get ahead is because we're just relying on our own strength. We're relying on our own wisdom. We won't put the oars down for just half a second and let you take over. So Lord, please forgive us for our pride. Please forgive us for failing to humble ourselves before you. Please forgive us for thinking of your intervention as a last resort. We pray that you would intervene in our lives in a powerful way, and just as the apostles were in the the moment that we looked at in Mark chapter 6, that we too would be utterly amazed at the intervention that happens in our lives through the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray right now for those in this room who are close to you, that you would strengthen their faith and help them to walk with you daily. I pray, Lord, for those in this room who as of yet do not know you in a personal way, that you would draw them unto yourself, help them to see that you'd open all our eyes to our need for your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're just so thankful for your presence with us right now. We commit ourselves to you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. God looks at your heart, not your gene size. Do you know the verses yet still stress over your body? Oh, I get it. I was raised in church, but I struggled with food, eating disorders, and my body for decades. I'm Heather Creekmore, host of the Compared To podcast, where we talk about all things body image and comparison from a biblical perspective. We get real about the pressure to focus on appearance in a culture where looks seem to matter most. Whether you're wrestling wrinkles or battling the scale, Compared To Who is the show for you. You'll laugh a little and be encouraged a lot. If you're ready to stop comparing and start living, visit lifeaudio.com to listen and subscribe.